This episode of the Daily 202 podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections. Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is the Daily 202 for Monday, September 28th. In today's news, President Trump reportedly paid just $750 in federal income taxes in 2016 and the same amount in 2017, and no taxes at all in several previous years. Democrats plan to make Amy Coney Barrett's Supreme Court confirmation a referendum on Obamacare. And five weeks out from the election, Trump plays defense in several states he carried in 2016. But first, the big idea. The confirmed global death toll from COVID-19 is just about to pass 1 million. That is as many as live in San Jose, California, Volgograd, Russia, or Qum, Iran. To mark this grim milestone, our foreign correspondents across the globe have filed vignettes about people in the countries they cover who have succumbed to the contagion. Reading them is a sad reminder that this is a pandemic that has divided countries from within Yet it has united the world in common anguish and loss. In the United States, a son in Sacramento can only listen to a description of his mother's burial in New Jersey via his daughter, the only relative permitted to attend. The dead are mostly poor. In an Indian village, a man's family borrows a wooden cart that a neighbor used to sell fish and carries his body to his funeral pyre. And the dead are mainly workers. In Brazil, a man who works in a meatpacking plant does everything he can think of to protect himself, yet he brings the bug home and now his wife is dead. Yet at each stop along the virus's eight-month journey, as deaths mounted, those whose loved ones have died feel compelled to tell the stories of the people they have lost. Even as the illness spiked, these families fought to find a way to mourn together. And COVID continues to kill. India's hospitals are racing to secure badly needed oxygen as infections there soar. Infections again are spiking in the Brazilian city of Manaus, which is a bad sign because they thought that they had herd immunity. Mexico's top health official said last night that an accurate COVID death toll may not be available for a couple of years. As in most countries, Mexico's official death toll, which stands at 76,000, the fourth highest total worldwide, is widely understood to be a significant undercount. Back here at home, confirmed cases topped 7 million over the weekend. That's less than a month after the country reached 6 million cases. It took several months from February to late April for us to reach 1 million infections. But caseloads surged in early summer before beginning a slight downward trajectory in late July as many states closed down bars, and instituted mask mandates. Since mid-September, thanks partly to Labor Day parties, the rolling seven-day average of new cases reported every day has been rising again, though thankfully not to the heights seen this summer when as many as 70,000 new infections were logged in a single day. Among the states witnessing the highest per capita increases over the past week were North and South Dakota, Wisconsin, Utah, and Iowa, highlighting how this virus is now spreading across the Great Plains and Midwest. 
Experts attribute that to social gatherings hosted by young people and the return to in-person classes and dormitory life at major universities. At least 204,000 of our fellow Americans have now died of COVID. And the contagion continues to take a serious economic toll. Already facing its worst crisis since 9-11, the airline industry is set to cut more than 35,000 jobs this week. Federal bailouts had been conditioned on them not laying people off before September 30th. There's also a worrisome mental health fallout that we're seeing materialize. The military revealed over the weekend that active duty suicides are up as much as 20%. While the data is incomplete and causes of suicide are complex, Army and Air Force officials told the AP that they believe the pandemic is adding stress to an already strained force. And schools continue to be battlegrounds in the domestic war over the right response to the crisis. Florida's Republican Education Commissioner has just ordered Miami to fully open all schools by next Monday. That's more than two weeks earlier than the system, the fourth largest in the country, had decided to do after a marathon 29-hour 29 29-hour 29 school board meeting last week. The board voted to open schools for some students on October 14th, with all students who opted to return to classrooms to be there by October 21st. The idea was that that would give the district time to put in place sufficient safety measures to prevent outbreaks. But the Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, appears to want everyone back sooner in an effort to jumpstart the economy by getting parents back to work before the election in a critical battleground state. Meanwhile, on Sunday in New York, city principals passed a vote of no confidence in Mayor Bill de Blasio over his school reopening plans. Teachers and parents have complained about the Democrats' lack of standards and transparency in the country's largest districts and continuing staffing shortages. And down in Georgia, health officials are withholding information about infections at schools, saying the public has no legal right to information about outbreaks. The state's decision to conceal this vital public health information means parents and teachers can only gauge the risk they face if their local school system decides to publish its own data. In many cases, schools are choosing not to do so. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar as we start the week. Number one, President Trump paid just 750 bucks in federal income taxes in 2016 and then the same amount in 2017, and he paid no taxes at all in several previous years. In a very significant story posted Sunday evening. The New York Times said it obtained tax return data for Trump and his businesses covering much of the last two decades. Trump has, of course, refused to release his tax returns, making him the only president in recent history to do so. And he went to the Supreme Court earlier this year to stop Congress and the Manhattan District Attorney from accessing them. The Times story shows what Trump would not, that the business empire he brags about has struggled with Keystone properties like the President's Doral Resort in Florida and his D.C. hotel steadily losing money. And in the next few years, Trump will be required to pay about $421 million in loans and other debts. The Times story says Trump is still fighting the IRS over a $72.9 million tax refund that he was granted in 2010. The IRS is trying to determine if that refund, granted after Trump claimed extensive business losses, was legitimate. If Trump loses that dispute... The paper says he could have to pay the government more than $100 million. In a news briefing at the White House, Trump called the Times story fake news, but he did not take issue with any specific details. Number two, Trump made it official on Saturday night. 
His nominee for the Supreme Court vacancy created by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg is Amy Coney Barrett, the judge from Indiana. Trump reiterated on Sunday that he wants to, quote, terminate the 2010 Affordable Care Act that created an opening for Democrats. They've been grumbling that Trump's rushing the nomination of Barrett in hopes of improving his reelection chances and in preparation for a potential court fight over the results. But with little chance to block her confirmation, they're increasingly acknowledging that and turning instead to the practical question of how Barrett would rule in a case that the court is set to hear the week after election day. Democrats think Barrett could spell the end of the ACA's popular guarantee that insurers cannot deny coverage to people with pre-existing medical conditions. They hope that will motivate Democratic voters the same way it did in the 2018 midterms. Barrett has spoken and written in opposition to the Supreme Court's 2012 5-4 decision preserving the law against an initial constitutional challenge. Although candidates for the high court rarely spell out their views on specific cases during their confirmation hearings, both Republicans and Democrats expect that Barrett would vote to strike down the law in the current case given her past commentary. And a growing number of Democrats in the Senate have started announcing that they will refuse to even meet with Barrett at all. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer became the most prominent to do so on Sunday. He said he won't see her because, one, the process is illegitimate, and two, because she would overturn the ACA. Republicans have scheduled October 12th as the first day of the confirmation hearing for Barrett's nomination. Number three. Of the 13 states where Joe Biden spent money on television ads last week, Hillary Clinton only won three of them in 2016, Minnesota, New Hampshire, and Nevada. Of the 12 places where Trump is spending money, all but Minnesota and Nevada are places he won in 2016. Biden has committed millions to advertising in Georgia and Iowa, where Trump won in 2016, while Trump's campaign continues to decrease his investment in other states, including New Hampshire and Michigan, as the candidates prepare for the first presidential debate on Tuesday night in Cleveland. Michael Shearer and Josh Dossey report today that the symbolic and strategic core of this race remains in the northern states of Wisconsin, Minnesota, Pennsylvania, and Michigan, a traditionally Democratic region where Clinton underperformed. But so far this year, Biden has maintained an apparent connection to white voters in these states and elsewhere that Clinton let slip away as she lost all those states but Minnesota. That connection has also boosted Biden's chances in states like Ohio and Iowa, which were long considered to be in Trump's quarter because he won them so convincingly in 2016. But public and private polling shows that's no longer the case. And a Washington Post-ABC News poll published on Sunday shows that Biden now leads Trump by 10 points nationally among likely voters. Trump has a lead of 55% to 42% among male likely voters, but Biden has an even larger advantage among female likely voters. In fact, it is the biggest gender gap we have ever recorded. 65% of women back Biden and 34% support Trump. And that's The Daily 202 for Monday, September 28th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Hellman. I'll talk to you tomorrow. This episode of the Daily 202 podcast is brought to you by Facebook. At Facebook, we've taken critical steps to prepare for the U.S. elections. We've more than tripled our safety and security teams, implemented five-step ad verification, and launched a new voting information center. Learn more at facebook.com slash about slash elections.